0: So this summer, uh, we've been walking through uh, Romans chapter uh, 5, and we're going all the way to Romans chapter 8, and uh, we've been taking on this idea or this, this theme called walking in newness. Uh, so, how do we walk in this new relationship with the Lord, or how do we walk in this new way once we place our faith in the work of Jesus Christ? So, once we do that, God has provided us a new way, and so we've been talking about that. And last week, uh, over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at Romans chapter five, and one of the things that's come up is we've we've uncovered the reality of grace, especially in Romans chapter five verse twenty, where it talks about where sin increases in our life. So, once we are a believer and we sin more in our lives, the more we sin. The more grace that is abound. So, the more grace that God pours out on us. So, more sin, more grace. So, in our lives, as we, we walk and we do the things that are contrary to our new nature, we see that God gives us more and more and more and more and more grace. My kids last week were making fun of me because I used the word more way too many times. They're like, Dad, you said more a lot. Well, I wanted them to see and I want us to understand when we sin, God's grace pours out on us more and more and more. And so thinking about this, one natural question that should arise in our lives as we understand and begin to um, comprehend this idea of grace is the question is, so does that mean that as a believer that I have a license to sin? Because if I sin, then I get more grace. And doesn't that mean if I, I get more grace, doesn't that mean I get more of God? And isn't that really the purpose of the Christian life is to get more of God? So if I sin more, doesn't that mean I get more grace? I want us to see today that that is not what Scripture is teaching. It is a reality. So the more you sin, the more grace you get. But the reality is is that's not a way to walk in newness of life. You don't want to sin more so that more grace has to be applied. But Paul sensing this question is arising in his readers attacks it here in our passage this morning. So look with me in chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Paul answers or asks this rhetorical question as he he sees this question coming up in the hearts of his readers. What shall we say then? He says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? So he handles that question right off the bat. Should we continue to live in the sin so that we get more and more grace? And we see here in in verse 2, he gives the answer. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Answers by no means, absolutely not. We should not continue to live in sin so that grace may abound. And he says this, he gives us this clarifier, and he gives the the question and the answer and spends the rest of this passage talking about his answers, why this should not be. He says, by no means, we we should not continue to live in sin so that grace may abound. And he says, why? Because we've come into this new relationship. You've come into this new relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. And now because you live in this new relationship, you take on this new identity. And to live in sin is to live contrary to your new identity. And he's going to spend the rest of the time unpacking that. And that's what we're going to do this morning. He's going to, we're going to look at our new identity and the way it is described and, and the way and the reason why we should not continue to live in sin. It's almost an impossibility to, to continue to live in sin in some ways, but it's also... Um, a way in which the gospel helps us care for our tendencies towards sin and our nature of sin. So let's look even further into this. And we can begin, I've given you an outline on the back of your um, bulletin today, so you can go ahead and fill in some of those blanks as we go along the way. But I want us to begin today looking at the entrance into our new identity. And we see Paul's tackling this in verses 3 and 4. He says this is how we entered into this new identity. He says, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the bed by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul says here, he he reminds us of the entrance that we had into this new identity. And he says that it came about through baptism. Baptism is through which we entered into this new identity. And look at there what he says. This identity is into Christ. So we go from being outside of Christ or being enemies of God that we enter into a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Christ. So it is in Jesus Christ we find our identity. We looked at that last week, and we saw that it's in Jesus we have been given a new nature, we have been forgiven, we have been made justified before God, we have been reconciled to God, and so it's in Christ that we have all of these beautiful things, and it is in baptism that we are further identified with Christ. Christ. Now we look at this and you may say, well, I thought baptism wasn't something that saved you. I, I, I've always heard that baptism was, was something that was outward that we did when I was changed on the inside. And I want to explain that just for a moment. For we see here that, that Paul is making a direct relationship between baptism and, and faith and this new life let me explain it this way. So there's a a private profession or a private personal profession that comes before baptism. So in the privateness of your heart, you come to faith in Christ. That's something that you can't do because your parents did. Your parents can't make you saved. Your parents can't give you faith. Uh, Your husband or wife can't give you faith. Your, Your children can't give you faith. Your faith in Jesus Christ is your faith, and it comes at a moment that's very personal between you and God. So there's a personal aspect of someone that is found to be in Christ, but then we see there's an act of obedience that God calls us to once we are found in Christ or have our faith in Christ. He says, go and tell the world. So there's a public profession of this faith, and we do it through being baptized. Now, baptism is telling the world that no longer am I my own, but you're telling the world through baptism that I am his. And so it is a way of of publicly and personally connecting ourselves with our new identity, telling the world that we're different. So it's a personally identifying. We see here in this passage, we're personally identifying with Jesus' death. We're personally identifying ourselves with his burial. And we're personally identifying ourselves with Jesus' resurrection. We see in baptism, you, you see this as we, we participate here on our campus in, in baptism. We, we talk about the symbolism of water and the symbolism of the grave. For in baptism, it's not as though our sins are actually walked, washed away, but it's symbolic of what has place because of our faith in Christ. So we have water that is there, and we baptize someone that has already professed faith. They go under the water, and so it's identifying themselves with Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection again. It's also symbolism of dying to our old, old self, that we're no longer controlled by our sinful nature, but that we were raised to walk in this new way, which is what Paul is talking about here. And so there's enormous importance for the believers, for someone that has already placed faith in Jesus Christ. There's enormous importance for people to be baptized. Though it's not salvific, salvific in itself or bring about salvation, it is something that is very important because Jesus says it's your first act of obedience. It is your act of obedience. If you're following in me, then you unite yourself or make yourself look like me or identify yourself to the world that you are his. So it's an act of obedience. But also baptism provides a new way to walk, is what Paul says here. Through baptism, we're, we're, we've told the world that we're different, and so now the world's looking at us differently, and now we have this new way to walk. The best way that I can give this an example in, in our lives to help it kind of connect and make sense is the example of marriage. For in marriage, we enter into a, a new identity. So you go from, and there's, there's this process we go through to taking on this new identity of marriage. First of all, you find the person that God has for you. You've prayed and the other person's prayed and somehow the Lord brings you together and, and you begin to, to live life where you're trying to figure out, is she the one, is he the one? And God says, they're the one. And finally, then you go to this point where there's a distinct change in your life. You go from just being boy and girl to being engaged. Once there's a, a question that is asked, there's a proposal that is given, there's a response to that proposal, And then you're engaged. So, And that engagement usually takes place much like coming to faith in Jesus Christ is very, very private. Engagements are very, very private. They're between two people. A person's not getting engaged to the whole world. The person's getting engaged to just one other person. And that's a very private thing. But in that sense, that status has changed. So a person on Facebook that goes from being single to being engaged, what are they going to do? They're going to change their Facebook status from single to engaged, right? So there's, there's this change that is taking place that's private. But then there's this public profession of this change where two people are promising to live their lives together. It takes place in the wedding ceremony. There again is another Facebook status change. Once you're married, you go from being engaged, you move into being married. And then in that moment, during that wedding ceremony, you're making a public profession to the world. That we are each other's, or I am his and she is mine. There's exchanging of rings, which become a, a symbol to the world that says, I'm taken. That I'm no longer my own. That I belong to someone else. And so we see in marriage that that takes place Something miraculous the Bible tells us takes place in a marriage ceremony Two separate people become one Two individual people that have separate personalities In the sight of God and become one And they walk then in this one So in this moment they are made one They are married But then they sp- spend the rest of their lives together being married As they develop or as they walk in this marriage Much the same way, this is what Paul is talking about, the way we walk in newness in Christ. In a moment, we're instantaneously changed. In a moment, when we place faith in Jesus Christ, we go from being a dead person to being alive. We go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. So all these dramatic changes happen in a moment, but then we begin this new path where we walk with the Lord. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And then as we transition into verse 5, we see not only only do we have entrance into this new identity, the second thing we see is we have a deeper description of our new identity. Verse 5, look with me. It says, For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I love this word united. This word united in, in the Greek, uh, it, it only occurs here in the New Testament. And literally what it means is to grow in union, to grow in union or, or to plant in union. So basically this, this word uh, describes two plants that have been planted together and that are growing together. So two plants that are planted so closely together that their roots underneath the soil are are growing together and becoming intertwined. But then as they grow, they're growing together in such a way that they're intertwining that you almost can't see one for the other, but they become one. Have you ever seen those plants, uh, those trees that are, they're usually in big pots that they have, maybe at the mall or other places, where it looks like there's two separate trees down at the bottom, but then they grow and they spin around each other. and it almost looks just like one tree. Have you seen those? That's the idea behind this word. So uh, Paul is telling us here is that we've been united in this way, where we, with Christ are two separates, but we begin to grow in this way where we come to look like one. And it says here that we've been united in his death, but we've also been united in his resurrection. So what Christ did, his work in his life, his work of obedience, and the work that brings us life, we are, are united in that. So together as one. So it's kind of like in marriage. Where in a moment, you are made into this union. It's the same union that marriage talks about is the same union uh, that Paul is talking about here. It's a moment where you are joined together, but it's also a promise of a lifetime of growing together. It's that moment in which someone goes from being single to being married, and everything changes. And to get back to the the first question, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? The answer is no. That's as silly and as crazy. Because we are unified with Christ, because we are made one with Christ, that's almost as crazy as someone that is now married takes on this new identity is living in this new marriage begins to live like they were single. Like how long do you think it would last if if there were two, two people that were married together and one of the partners in the marriage decides, you know what? Even though I'm married now, I've got a spouse, I want to begin to live like I was single again. How long do you think that marriage would last? Not very long. And so we see that we are united with Christ and we take on this, this new identity. And Paul gives us here some realities of this new identity. What does this new identity look like and what is life all about? Because you need to know that. You need to know what life is going to look like as you're walking in this new identity. And he gives us two things here, beginning in in verse 7 and in verse 8, he gives us two things. First thing he says is that we're free from sin, and then we are alive to live. So we're free from sin. Verse 7, let me read that to you so you can follow along with us. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So one of our new identities is we're free from sin. The question should come about is, well, how then are we free from sin? Well, Paul answers that in verse 6. Let me read verse 6 for you. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we're free from sin. And through this union with Christ, we are unified with Christ's death. And because of his death, there are certain things verse 6 tells us about our lives. It tells us three things about how we are free from sin or how we are united with Christ's death. First of all, it says our old self was crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with him. What that means is the person of sin inside of us died. The person that was the person of sin inside of us died. Now, we still have the capacity to sin when we come to know Christ and we live in this union with Christ. We still have the capacity to sin, but our old self died. The capacity in our lives still lives, but our old self, uh, our old life does not. That old life that was, that was uh, the life of sin that was given to us from Adam is dead and it has gone away with. Have you ever wondered why at cemeteries there, there aren't guards at cemeteries that are watching over the graves? Like there may be sometimes, there, there may be a situation where there are fences around cemeteries or where they have um, cameras at cemeteries. But what they're not doing is they're not protecting the world from the people inside the cemeteries. What those, if there are guards or there are fences, they're protecting people from outside from doing damage to those that, that are already dead and inside the graves. So it's, it's a wonder to me that have you ever wondered why there aren't people like guarding the graves so that the dead people don't come out? Like if it's a zombie uh, apocalypse or something like that, that, that may happen. And, um, but, but the reality is that that's not going to happen, um, though you may like to see those things on TV and scare you a little bit and all that. But we see that, that there aren't guards that are there with guns overneath the tombs, even of some of the worst people in the world. If you think of some of the worst people that have died, that have done horrendous, horrible things in life, when they're in their grave, there's no one there watching to make sure they don't get back up again. Why? Because they're dead. Their potential and their opportunity to sin is done away with. That's what Paul is saying about our old self. Our old self is saying, it's dead, it's done, it's gone away with. That part of us died. So our old selves were crucified. The second thing we see that we're free from sin is that the body of sin has been brought to nothing. What that means is the power of sin in our life has died. You see, what we took on from Adam was, was a tendency towards sin. We, we were bent towards sin. But what Paul is saying here is that not that it has completely done, done away with, but that power or that power of that bentness towards sin has been done Away with it is gone. That power that is over us, that drives us to want to sin, to make us want to sin, that is gone because we're united in Christ's death. I don't know, have you ever played with, with a, um, um, a magnet or tried to make a magnet out of a battery? Like you take it, like the 9 volt battery, and you get some wires, and you took the positive end, the negative end, and you, you take that wire and you wrap it around a, a nail. That nail, when you do that, becomes magnetized so it can go close to metal and it's going to have this draw towards metal and it'll connect to it and want to stick to it. Well, that's kind of like what we are in, in our bentness towards sin. We're almost like that nail that is, that is connected to this battery. There's this power that is flowing through us that almost magnetizes or draws us towards sin. So we get close to metal and you can feel it pulling pulling and the closer it gets, bam, it's stuck there right into the metal. And it, you have to pull it away with great strength to move it away from that metal. In some ways, that, that's what Paul is talking about in, in our own lives is that we are bent towards sin. So it's almost as though we have this power that is in us, when we walk close to the things that are tempting or the passions of our life, what we do is we're drawn to it and we we inevitably have to go to it. But what Paul is saying here is that that power has become powerless in our lives. It's as though we've been removed from the battery, so there's no charge, there's no power in our lives that's drawing us towards sin. It's gone. It's done away with. We also see that we're free from sin in verse 6 because we are no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. In Jesus' death, slavery to sin died. When When a slave has been free, that slave can stand in front of his master and as that master barks orders at him, that slave, that freed slave, can look in the master's eye and say, I ignore you. I no longer have to listen to you. And so in Christ, we are connected in Christ in his death, and we are free from the slavery of sin. We have the power to look sin in the face and say no. We no longer have to be masters to or slaves to our master's sin. So we're free from sin. That's one of the ways that we're connected in Christ's death. But we also see in verses 8 through 10 that we are alive to live. So we're free from sin. But the second benefit is being alive to live. Look with me in verses 8 through 10. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death we died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we are alive to live. It's through our union with Christ's resurrection we get to experience this present experience, not just a future experience. We we see that always as we walk through Scripture. There are some things that are are, our presence or our promises for the future, like we will be with Him in glory. We will be in heaven reigning with Christ. We will be able to experience the abundance of God's love and grace in the future. But in this passage, He's talking about things that we can experience right now. Now And he gives us two things. We are alive to live, and he says that we can live with Christ is the first thing. So we're alive to live, but we live with Christ. For Christ is alive. Because he resurrected from the dead, we see that Christ now has life. He has never died again, nor will he ever die again. So with Christ, he is alive, and we are connected. We have union with this Christ so that we can live with him. And basically, this living with Christ is the idea or the biblical um, word of sanctification it's the biblical idea of sanctification where over time we become more and more and more see more and more and more like christ because we live with christ god's at work in us providing this powerful transformation where we look more and more like christ the more and more we walk with christ Now, have you guys ever seen uh, dogs and people, you know, when you have owners and dogs and they live together over the course of time, sometimes people begin to look like their dogs? Like if you look here, this is a a great example of that. (laughs) People looking like their dogs. Is that true? Have you guys been able to identify that in your life too as well? People that look like their dogs over time. Well, why are people able to look like their dogs? Well, it's because they're spending time with each other. So the dog, I don't know if the dog is looking like the owner or the owner's looking like the dog. But something in a sense, you can look at that and you can't say, I don't know who's doing that. But I know they look the same. They look similar. And over time, the, the face and the, the demeanor and, and the, uh, the way that they act it, it kind of looks together. They look very similar. And that's what Paul is getting to right here. Life with Christ is similar to that. Now, I don't know if we're the dog or if God's the human. All I know is that over time, we will look more and more like Christ and less and less like ourselves. That's what Paul is talking about. One of the benefits of the resurrection, one of the powers that is in the resurrection is there's power to be transformed. There's power to be changed, going from a life that is full of sin, a life that is full of rebellion, a life that is full of addiction, a life that is full of pride, a life that is full of hate, a life that is full of anger, a life that is full of all of these things that we despise in our own lives. There's power through our union with Christ for those things to be done away with and be dealt with so that we may be changed. Where over time we look less like ourselves and more like Christ. And we begin to look on the outward to be more of a person like Christ, where love begins to abound more and more in our lives, where we we look at our tongue and the way we use our tongue, and our, our, our tongue is no longer a tongue that curses, but it's a tongue that blesses or it's a tongue that encourages. We look at our free time, and our free time is not just looked at for our own pleasure, but our free time is given to the Lord so that he may use our time for his benefits and for his glory. But we live with Christ. And the second thing we see is that we live to God. This process of change that happens in our lives or this process of walking with Christ brings glory to God. And the reason that it brings glory to God is because the God in, in God's the way he views us, he looks at us and he sees us as his trophies. He sees us as people that are in this process of change and the world looks in at our lives and they see that we're changing too. They see that we used to be this kind of person, but now we're this kind of person. Well, who brought about the change? It has been God in us that has been bringing about the change. And so when we look back and we say 18 years ago, I used to be this way, but now today I'm this way. It is God that gets the glory. And so we live unto God or we live towards God. God is the one that we are hoping to find our own pleasure in, but it is God in whom we hope to please. But how do we make this a part of our lives? I think verse 11 is key because we can say all these things. We know these things in our mind. We know that we're made new. We know that we're dead to sin, but sin still reigns in our bodies. There are times in which we walk through our lives and we still struggle with sin. We struggle with addiction. We struggle with anger. We struggle with all these other things that bombard our lives. But Paul is here saying that you're made new. Those things no longer have power over us. So then why in the world do we still live with these challenges? gives us verse 11, and I love verse 11. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How we make this a part of our lives is it begins by considering. This idea of considering is, is, is it's an It's a movement towards the mind. It's a movement of the mind. We must begin by thinking about the promises of God, thinking about how our life was, but now because we're in this new identity, how our life is. And the more we think about this, what it does is it changes what we think to what we believe, and then what we believe we end up doing. For I've said it earlier already, and I'll repeat it again, that what we truly believe impacts what we truly do. No one acts on anything other than what you believe. If you truly believe that there is a boogeyman, then you lay in bed at night with the door cracked and you see shadows. If you believe the boogeyman is in your closet, then you put your head under your pillow. But if you don't believe the boogeyman is real, then you no longer are afraid when you're laying in bed. What you believe impacts what you do, not what you think. Because you can lay there in bed and you can say to yourself, rationally, I know that there is no boogeyman. But yet my belief is there's a boogeyman in my closet. And so that's going to change what you do. But you come to the point where you, over and over and over again, you let, let your thinking tell you, there is no boogeyman. There is no boogeyman. There's no such thing as the boogeyman. The boogeyman is not in my closet. And the more you think about that, the re- that's going to change the way you believe so that when you see that shadow in the crackness in your closet, you're like, that's not the boogeyman. That's my sweater. <laughs> and you're no longer afraid, Right? So what we think, and that's what Paul is saying here, consider, take the time to allow this to begin in your mind, but allow it to change what you believe. Change what you believe, because you you know these things, you believe them, and then you will do them, or you will walk in them. Early on in, in our marriage marriages, and those of you that have been married, those of you who don't you, haven't been married yet, uh, know that early on in the marriage, there are, are, are conscious or cognitive decisions that you must make to walk in your new identity. I'm gonna explain that. During your single years, many of the decisions that you made were fully up to you. So you could decide in your single years how, especially if you lived alone, how the toilet paper went on the roll. Does it roll over or does it roll over the back, right? Roll over the front, roll over the back. That was totally up to you. No one was there saying you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. So that decision, the way you put the the toilet paper on the roll was totally up to you. The, another decision is, is how you drank out of your milk carton. Like, if you ran up to the milk carton and you're like, man, I'm thirsty, I'm only going to take a swig, you open it up and you put it up to your mouth and drink right out of the mug, that's totally up to you when you're single or when you get to the end and you're pouring your coffee in the morning and there's only a little bit of creamer left in in the coffee thing, you use all that up, you're like, good, I need to go get some more. That's totally up to you whether you're going to use that or you're going to save it for some other reason. I don't know why you would, but that's totally up to you. You have the right to choose. But when you're married, when you become married, no longer are those decisions really your own, right? Those things that were so easy for you or part of your singleness now must be changed, You have to cognitively think about which way the toilet paper goes on the roll. You have to have that conversation with your wife or your husband. That's a conversation that you will have. Does it go over the front? Does it go over the back? That's something that you do. And if you do it wrong, then there's a challenge, then there's fighting and arguing and all those other things. There's also a decision that, that needs to be made about, about the, the jug. Maybe you're a family where you guys are like, okay, cool, it's cool. You can, if you want to drink out of it, that's fine, but it's a decision that you have to make. Or if one of you is grossed out by the idea of someone taking their whole mouth and wrapping it around the top of a, of, of a gallon uh, jug and just getting their saliva all over it just for a swig, if you're like, no, you can't do that, you've got to put it in a glass, that's a conversation that you have to have. Or if you're at the place where you're looking at the coffee creamer and you're going ready to pour that coffee creamer and you know that your spouse hasn't had coffee yet, that's going to impact your decision. Whether you're going to use all of that coffee creamer or if you're going to set it back and allow it to be there for your spouse. Those are cognitive things that happen. Now, those are big changes that happen in our life. And sometimes if we don't do those right, there's, there's challenge and there's, and there's difficulties But the more and more you live in this new relationship with your spouse, you begin to realize that those things become less and less hard for you to do, but they become more like who you are and what you do. But early on in marriage, you're walking down this way and you wake up early in the morning, your spouse, you wake up before your spouse. And you're thirsty, you wake up and you go to the, the fridge, you open it up and you're like, oh, there's the milk, i got to get something to drink before I, I go and get my coffee and pour the creamer out and all that other good stuff. Before You wake up before your spouse and you're doing all this, there are decisions that are made. And the more and more you, you make the decision to be a husband, to, to be a, a proper spouse, to be a proper wife, it's going to change the way you do. But sometimes along the way, you slip into your old habits, Right? Like you're new, you're on this new way, you know the new way to go, but there's this tendency inside of you still to to want to like take the jug and like drink from it or use all of the creamer and, and, and not give any for your spouse. You have to make a conscious decision along the way and that's what Paul is talking about here. In this new life, you've been living this old way for most of your life and now that you've taken on this new identity, things have changed. And you'll come to the place in your life where you'll come to a place where you can go left or you can go right. You can go left or you can go right. You can do the thing that you know to be true as part of your new identity. Or you can slip back into your old way. And if you, and the more you live in your life, more on cruise control in your walk with the Lord, if you're more on cruise control, you're going to lean more to the right. You're going to constantly lean more to the right. But the more you continue to think on the things of the Lord and the more you walk in the ways of the Lord, you can continue to go left, left. That's what Paul is talking about. And he says here, we can live out our new identity. Lastly, we, so we, we enter into this new identity. It gives us a deeper discovery into this new identity. And lastly, we live out this identity. And let me give you this as we close. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul gives us here how we live out this new identity. It's this process in which we live out this new identity. As we walk toward God in this unity, we must make a daily decision about our members. Because this is the challenge. Living in the Christian life, you have to decide what you're going to do with your members. Now, members is every part of you. It's your it's your mind, it's your soul, it's your spirit, it's your hands, it's your eyes, it's your tongue, it's your ears, it's your feet, it's your legs. He's talking about the full person. He's talking about all of you, not only those that are inside, but outside of you, your full body, your full nature. He says, present your members Your members are yours, and you get to choose whom you're going to submit your members to on a daily basis. He says those that are living out this new identity in Christ, the challenge is to give your members over daily to the Lord so the Lord can use you as instruments of righteousness. I love this because it's not the member, it's not the person that owns the members that's doing the work, but the person that owns the members is submitting their members to something else to do the work. So again, in our good deeds, the good things that we do, it's not us doing it, but it's God doing it in us and through us. And there's great power in our members. There's great potential in our members. Think of the the power that the chisel and the hammer are in the hand of the artist. Like the members, the the chisel and the hammer in the hands of the artist can do amazing work. Work, make art and beautiful things so that the world can see. We are those members and we submit ourselves to the hands of God to be able to do that. But also think about how powerful or dreadful that same chisel and hammer are in the hands of a baby. Like a baby that doesn't have a capacity to make beautiful things. The baby that has capacity to like bring a lot of, about a lot of pain with those same, very same instruments. Paul Paul's telling us here to submit ourselves as those members to the Lord and we must do it daily. We're gonna talk about that more next week, but I wanna leave you with this. The prayer of your heart in the morning as you wake up, if you are in Christ, the prayer of your heart and as you wake up in the morning should be, Lord, use me today. I give you myself, I give you my mind, I give you my heart, I give you my hands, I give you my eyes, I give you my ears, I give you my feet. I give you all of me to you, so that you may use it today. So it's not me doing it, but it's you doing it. I submit myself to you. Use me how you see fit. And then at the end of the day, as you're laying your head down on your pillow, you put your head down and you're like, God, look at all the ways that you use me today. It's a way to honor the Lord. So the questions today, as we uh, come to our time of close, my question to you is, if you're here today, have you entered into this new identity with Christ? Have you come to the place in your life where you're no longer placing faith in yourself to be right before God or placing your faith in other things, but you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross, so that you may be in right relationship with the Lord? If that's you here today, or if you, don't, you want to have that further explained to you, in just a few moments, I'm going to be standing in the back of the room. We're going to sing, and I'm going to be in the back of the room. If you have questions about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, come take me out the hand and say, Pastor, I want to know Jesus more. Or maybe you're here, and, and you are a believer, and you've walked in with the Lord, but sin in your life is out of control. You've come here today as your last hope. You're like, God, I'm out of control. I can't control my passions. I can't control my addictions. I'm out of control, and God, I just need you today. Let me remind you that the promise of the Lord is, is if we come and we lay ourselves again at his feet, he picks up our pieces and he helps us walk in this new way. So maybe that's what you need to do today. Or maybe you're here today and you, you're, you're not, there isn't a specific sin in your life that you're really challenged with, but you're still trying to honor the Lord. Maybe what you need to do today is begin daily presenting your members unto the Lord so that he can use them. But whatever it is today, wherever we're at, the Lord has spoken to us, and let us respond to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your words. And Father, I thank you that you've made us new. And sometimes it's not easy, even though in a moment we're changed. We're from dead to alive. We are your children. We, we struggle to know what that means and what that really looks like. And so for those of us that are your children, God, help us uh, to come to you And help us to see in your word what that means to live in this new way. And help us, God. Give us the strength. Give us uh, the insight. And help us to be reminded that that what we think about changes what we believe, which changes what we do. And, Father, for those that are here today that that may not even know you, Father, I pray that your spirit would draw them uh, closer to you and give them the faith they need to trust you as their Lord and Savior. But God, as we sing this song now, God, I pray that the words that are coming out of our mouths would be a reflection of our heart. Let this song be our song of praise, but also let it be a song of just promise. We promise once again to give ourselves to you so that you may use us for your glory. In Jesus' name.